I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in our series, Nothing Burdensome. The season of Lent was inspired by Jesus' 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Why did Jesus choose these practices at this time, and how did he know to do them the way he did? What does this story teach us about the spiritual rhythms of Jesus' life, and how do we put them into practice? Years ago, I remember uh, sitting in a class and a teacher read aloud this famous quote, which was attributed to German priest and theologian Martin, Martin Luther. The quote goes, work, work from early until late. He said, in fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And he said that quote loose in a room, uh, as I've just done, and it creates this uh, immediate awareness of some deficit because I think probably most of us don't spend the first three hours of our workday in prayer. Uh, I didn't know the guy personally, but let's just assume for a minute that he really said it, and it wasn't hyperbole, and this is how that guy understood it, approached the, the demands of his life. He was so busy, and yet it's in his busyness that he dedicates more time to prayer, not less, carving away a significant stretch of his available time to do it. You only have so many hours a day, he's going to spend the first three hours of his workday in prayer, I have so much to do that I will spend the first three hours in prayer. Us, I figure, we think God kind of lets us off the hook when we're busy because that's how we tend to look at it, if only subconsciously, when we're on the hook, obligated. But if we have, quote unquote, so much to do, then God won't be mad if we can't, I'm using air quotes if you're listening to the podcast, can't pray that day or read your Bible or whatever it might be, as if these things were duties to be fulfilled for the sake of fulfilling them, rather than the means by which we do all other things. We've just begun a series which will invite each of you to write or rewrite or update and implement an ancient Christian practice called a rule of life. In simplest terms, a rule of life takes into account your season of life, your stage of discipleship. It considers your unique formational needs and where God is leading you at the moment, and it translates all that into different sets of spiritual disciplines divided into categories, presence, the mind, the body, relationships and sexuality, work and rest, money, and the gospel. Presence includes things like uh, practices designed to keep us in God's presence, like morning prayer or scripture reading or worship music or fasting, silence and solitude, those kinds of things. The mind are practices aimed at shaping the way that we think, like, again, reading scripture in the morning, but also things like spiritual reading or study or church on Sunday like you're doing now or sermon podcasts or gratitude or a digital rule of life when you outline when you will and won't spend time on a phone or on screens, a daily limit on device use, that kind of thing. The body is about sleep and regular exercise, a healthy diet, and even things like uh, doctor's visits, dentist visits. Relationships might include something like prioritizing weekly time with a close friend or your weekly meal with your Van City community or church on Sunday. For married couples, it could be things like a weekly date night or prioritizing healthy, consistent sexual connection. Or for families, it could be sitting down to dinner together, preferably every night, but at least something like five nights a week 
daily quality time, prayer over your kids before bed, taking vacations together. Work and rest are about a fixed hour schedule, a dedicated time to a supplemental project, that thing that you've been meaning to do that God put on your heart, uh, getting the right amount of sleep again, a weekly nothing night or a regular nothing day where you have no obligations but to relax, be with the people you love, um, and rest. Uh, when your only obligation is to chill, in other words. Money includes uh, tithing, uh, making and sticking with a budget, simplicity, a generosity fund, sponsoring a child, that kind of thing. And finally, gospel is about inviting a friend to church or hosting neighbors for dinner or, like I was saying earlier, raising your children to know Jesus, participating in the lives of the kids in our church so that they grow up knowing Jesus and people who love Jesus, getting to know your coworkers, serving the poor through volunteering, volunteering for justice causes, presence, the mind, the body, relationships and sexuality, work and rest, money, and the gospel. Each category has rhythms. So there are daily rhythms, weekly rhythms, monthly, quarterly, annual rhythms. For example, you know, I pray and read the scriptures every single day, but I only practice something like silence and solitude on the final Thursday of each month. Now, tonight, I want to talk about the foundation of the entire idea. To get where we're going tonight, we're going to look again at Matthew chapter 4 and kind of unpack it a little bit and bring it to bear on what we're talking about this season with the rule of life. Are you guys all right? You ready to do a little work? Great. Awesome. Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at verse 1 once again. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that word translated here as wilderness is eramos in Greek. It can be translated as desert, um, or it could be translated as deserted place, or desolate place, or solitary place, quiet place, even lonely place. So these descriptions actually have less to do with the geography or the physical makeup of the location in question. It has more to do with the purpose that the place assumes for Jesus. The Eremos is a lonely place for Jesus to have time and what we call silence and solitude. The story goes on, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So why all the fasting? In fact, why all the silence and solitude? Seems like a bad way to get your wits about you if Jesus knows that he's headed into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, first of all, 40 days isn't necessarily a literal measurement of time. It could be. But in the scriptures, 40 days is something like an idiom that designates a significant but ultimately limited passage of time. It's something like the way that we might say, it took me all day to do that. Almost no one means a literal unbroken 24-hour period. They mean it um, to refer to a substantial amount of their time during that day. So in this story, scholars argue that Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness act as a parallel to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, if you know the story of Exodus. Matthew, the author of uh, this biography, is up to something really important with that connection, with that illusion, the whole 40 days thing. So remember that for later. Right now, think about the simplicity of that line. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He's all alone. He's not eating anything for a long time. Without context, it reads as if these conditions, being all by yourself, not eating anything, the hunger, the isolation, it makes Jesus vulnerable to the devil's attack. We read it as though Satan shows up when Jesus is at his weakest. But in reality, Jesus chose to do all these things at this time because all of it is spiritual preparation for what comes next. He's getting stronger because of his fasting, not weaker. He's getting more focused, more attuned to the Spirit of God. 
The story opens with the, uh, Matthew saying, Jesus was led by who? The Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit draws Jesus out into the Aramos, not to make him weak, but because when these 40 days of silence and solitude and fasting conclude, Jesus will actually be at the height of his spiritual prowess. And then he will finally be properly prepared to face the evil one. This is why, if you read the Gospels, Jesus actually returns to the Aramos again and again and again, not to get weak, but to get strong. And then, sure enough, just like we read he would, the devil shows up. Look down at verse 3. The tempter, or the devil, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now notice the way that the tempter frames that first question, if you are the Son of God. Now, if you're reading Matthew's gospel cover to cover, the story that comes just before this one is the story of Jesus' baptism. Jesus comes out of the water, and the voice of God speaks over him, and what does God say? This is my Son. Then in the very next story, Satan arrives with a challenge, and it's predicated on calling into question what God has already spoken to be true, if you are God's son. And this has been the strategy of Satan since his earliest appearance in the story of the Bible in which God tells Adam and Eve, uh, eat this tree and you'll die. And Satan comes along and asks, did God really say that you would die? God already said who Jesus is, an audible voice from heaven. This is my son. And Satan invites Jesus to question what God said, if you are God's son. Sure, sure, God said you were, but how can we be sure until we see some rocks turn into bread? And then we'd know for sure, is, God, uh, is what God says good enough? Or do we need something else, evidence, proof? Turning stones into bread is, of course, not a temptation in the truest sense for most of us. Uh, under ordinary circumstances anyway. You probably wouldn't think to try it, I don't think, and you probably wouldn't believe you could do it anyway. It is, on the other hand, a temptation for a fully spirit-empowered person who is very hungry and very confident in their connection to God's spirit with full belief in the power of prayer, all that. After all, isn't it sort of beneath the Son of God to suffer hunger unnecessarily? Why languish in the wilderness without food when Jesus could summon the awesome, miraculous, transformative power to make a rock become toast? That would be incredible. I'd love to see that. And wouldn't it kind of confirm things? Good things. These aren't bad things. And is it really wrong to eat bread or to want bread? I mean, he has been fasting for a really long time. It's not like he hasn't put the work in already. So let's see how he responds. Once again, verse 4, Jesus answers the devil, it is written, meaning he's quoting from the scriptures, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus' rebuttal, it is written, could also be translated, scripture says. I love that. Jesus' view of the authority and centrality of the scriptures can hardly be exaggerated. For Jesus, the answer to temptation is in the text. To Jesus, the text demands familiarity, and it demands obedience. He knows the scriptures, and he arms himself with their truth against the lies of the devil. The devil speaks, liar. How do you know? The Bible. And he quotes Deuteronomy. Uh, it's actually chapter 8, verse 3, which is itself one piece of a story in which Israel in the wilderness is learning to wait for God's provision, if you remember, even for bread, actually, in order that they might live in loving dependence on their God, Yahweh. It's a really, really good story, and Jesus brings it to bear in this situation beautifully. Jesus is 
contrast between bread and every word that comes out of God's mouth may seem weird because you can't actually physically eat God's words and Jesus is physically hungry. But Jesus is reinforcing the reality that there's more to life than material provision. The identity that God has spoken over Jesus need not be proven by something like the miraculous provision of bread. Or put another way, it's a test of priorities. Which will come first? Obedience to the purpose of God or self-gratification? Jesus seems to understand that on this particular occasion, food will be provided at some point. He'll get it. He's not worried about that. And he's prepared to wait. And so we move to the next temptation. Verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, again with the if, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So suddenly we're transported elsewhere for the second test. Jesus is taken to the highest point of the temple and he's urged by Satan to jump. And since Jesus was so keen on the Bible in the previous temptation, Satan now uses the scriptures against him. Psalm 91, actually, to argue, once again, if you are really God's son, it stands to reason that God will make good on the promise of scriptures. You love the Bible so much, don't you know Psalm 91? And he'll rescue you from this fall, and then you'll be affirmed in your calling and your purpose. Satan knows the Bible. He wields it at his convenience. Interesting, the Bible can be used satanically. Think about that. And the Bible, we know from history, has been used to support things like manifest destiny or the bombs of war or the shackles of slavery, political causes and candidates. Westerners know this particularly well. So having failed to compel Jesus to sin in his physical hunger, Satan takes aim at Jesus's concern for the scriptures. Notice, having just been rebutted by Jesus by way of the Bible, remember Jesus said, it is written, now Satan says, for it is written. And Satan doesn't relegate his work to the wilderness. He skulks through the holy temple as well. He lurks the halls of the church. He urges sincere disciples with the surprising, heinous evil to disregard the scriptures or to pervert them in order to lend permission to evil. Jesus has responded in faith with the scriptures, so Satan challenges him indeed. Put your money where your mouth is, Mr. Bible. Glorify God by demonstrating your faith in the text. Surely you believe in God's promises. You believe in the scriptures, don't you? So let's see, you put your money where your mouth is. So Jesus replies to the devil in verse seven, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now this is Jesus quoting Deuteronomy six, do not test the Lord your God. It could also be translated something like, you shall not force the hand of God or manipulate or play around with God. So Jesus de demonstrates correct use of the scriptures against Satan's perversion of the scriptures. And notice Jesus challenges Satan's kind of crass, decontextualized, really overly literal reading of this particular text with a better, broader understanding of the story of God in its proper context. Of course, something like uh, stepping out in faith, even to compel something miraculous, absolutely has its place, uh, for sure. But that isn't what this test is about. This is about manipulating God to react and in doing so, challenging the truth that God has already spoken. Remember, it's predicated on if you are the son of God and Jesus already knows he's the son of God. God told him so. So Jesus, again, rebuts with Deuteronomy, but not to object to Psalm 91 as much as he is objecting to Satan's use of Psalm 91. For Jesus, 
testing God this way is a, a horrible reversal of roles. The son is meant to be tested that he might learn dependence on and obedience to the father. It's not the role of the father to be tested by the son. To behave in this way would be to imply that the father is to submit to and serve the son, just as we know from Jesus' ongoing confession. He has come to do the will of the father. And then the final test begins. We're almost there. Let's read verse 8 one more time. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, the, me, the mention of the glory of the kingdoms of the world suggests that the devil is offering universal governmental dominion. He's prepared to offer the reins of all earthly empires to Jesus, which is, in other words, political power. And this is, after all, exactly what Israel's Messiah was often expected to come and claim. And it's still what so many professing Christians believe is their necessary right, political power. And the most fascinating and quite frankly haunting detail that so many scholars point out again and again in this story is that Jesus does not disagree that political power is Satan's. In fact, his very rejection of Satan's offer presupposes that the offer is legit. He doesn't say, you're a liar, you don't actually have any political power to give. The empires of the world, the governmental powers of the world, in other words, do belong to Satan. If that sounds like I'm reaching, look at how the authors of the New Testament describe the devil and his authority. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world would be driven out. Look at that governmental uh, royal language. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or this one from 2 Corinthians, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. First John, we know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Mennonite scholar John Howard Yoder summarizes the entire motif by saying this, there's a very strong strand of gospel teaching which sees secular government as the province of the sovereignty of Satan. This is perhaps most typically expressed by the temptation story in which Jesus did not challenge the claim of Satan to be able to dispose of the rule of all the nations. So all that to say, if Satan's not making a legitimate offer here, the temptation's kind of a farce, but he's making a, a real offer, and Jesus is actually tempted. Why would Jesus be tempted by an offer like that? Consider the stakes. In Greek, the verb here for what Jesus is being asked to do is a single act, meaning it's one momentary bow. It's a one-off acknowledgement. It's not necessarily an ongoing worship of Satan per se. Now, if Jesus truly loves the world, and he does, and if his mission truly weighs on him, and it does, then in an instant, the fulfillment of his good and loving kingship, that has to be at least somewhat tempting. Jesus isn't being tempted with corrupt power, but with his good power by certain instant means. It's the right ends by the wrong means. Jesus puts this plainly elsewhere. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' approach 
to power is entirely upside down. He will be the king of kings. And this is something that we're building to, to celebrate on Easter Sunday. But he accomplishes his kingship by becoming a servant. Look at the way Paul will go on to describe Jesus' pursuit of kingship. In one of his most beautiful writings, Paul the apostle says, Jesus, who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. That's Jesus, the king of the universe. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death the most humiliating way possible on a cross. And because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All that because Jesus made himself nothing. He humbled himself. He suffered the most humiliating death the Roman Empire had to offer. He made himself nothing. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Because of all that humiliation and death, every knee shall bow. So it's not just that Satan's offer is, you know, from Satan. That's a dead giveaway. But it's that Jesus' approach actually defies logic in the first place. Yes, kingship is where Jesus is headed, but he's getting there via suffering and humiliation and becoming nothing and even dying for his enemies. So let's see how Jesus responds to the final temptation. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. He's had enough. It is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only, and the devil left him, and angels, angels came and attended him. So again, Jesus uses Deuteronomy 6, and here he's had enough. He dismisses the evil one, and angels show up to care for Jesus, which actually fulfills the role that Satan previously distorted by quoting Psalm 91. You know, angels will come and attend to you. Jesus understood the correct use of Scripture, and it came to fulfillment. So Satan has gone after Jesus's identity, um, and though the offers were genuinely tempting, we read that story and we think, well, he's Jesus, so he wasn't actually tempted. That's funny. That's not what the story says. He was tempted by the devil, so he was actually tempted. Now, of course, Jesus uh, rejects those offers. He will face the work of the devil much more throughout his ministry. In fact, the test of Jesus's ultimate identity won't come to climax until the story of his execution. When Jesus' disciples learn of Jesus' impending death, the very heart of his mission, the heart of his purpose, Peter, who's one of Jesus' disciples and closest friends, he denounces the idea that Jesus would die um, and says, never, this can never happen to you. And Jesus refutes Peter by saying, away from me, Satan. The exact same thing that he said to the devil's attempt to dissuade Jesus from his purpose. That's bad news, by the way, if Jesus calls you Satan in a rebuke. Now, after this, Jesus stands before a Roman governor, governor, and he claims he does indeed possess authoritative power to summon angels to his rescue, the very thing that Satan challenged in tonight's story. But on both occasions, Jesus refuses to exploit his power. And then in Jesus' final moments, the religious and political leaders of Israel stand before the cross and they say, if you are the Son of God come down off the cross. And Jesus doesn't give in to their taunts. God, again, affirms his identity by raising him from the dead, which is way more impressive than coming down from the cross. And it's the greatest victory the world has ever known. The key, I think, in understanding tonight's text is in the interesting detail 
of Jesus' particular choice of rebuttal. Each of Jesus' three answers to Satan are quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures, Deuteronomy uh, 6, 7, and 8, if you're counting. Now, why is that noteworthy? Because the quotes in question are lifted from an Old Testament story in which Moses addressed Israel just before they enter the land of Canaan. In that story, Moses reminds the Jewish people of the 40 years they spent in the wilderness, the 40 years of preparation, of being tested in order to prove their faithfulness to Yahweh. And this has been meant to teach Israel what it means to live in loving, faithful relationship with their God. During their testing, Israel is meant to learn their need for more than just bread, but for God's word, not to test or to make Yahweh the exclusive recipient, of, uh, uh, but to make Yahweh the exclusive recipient of their worship and obedience. And then in Matthew's gospel, another son of God is being tested in the wilderness, 40 days. It's not Israel, it's God's uh, are Israel's God's children. This is Jesus of Nazareth, God's son. And beautifully, unlike Israel, who failed in her testing time and time again, Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus is the new and true Israel. He is the son of God, the child of God, through whom God's redemptive purpose for the world is finally coming to fruition after all this waiting. God promised to set the world to rights through Israel. And even though Israel failed to uphold her end of the covenant, God is yet creatively making good on his promise through Jesus, the new Israel. So Matthew's first century Jewish readers, we think Matthew's audience was primarily Jewish, they lived steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. They would have read that message loud and clear. And so would we if we were as steeped in the scriptures. And that's what I'm getting at with all this. Well, one of the things anyway. Before we end tonight, there's three dimensions of the story I want to bring to bear on our conversation about what it means to write and to live according to a rule of life. Being led by the Spirit, fasting in the wilderness, and Bible and doctrine. Now, following Jesus means doing things the way that he did them and the way he tells us to do them. But for a number of valid reasons, that's a difficult thing to do because you can't just kind of copy-paste the lifestyle of Jesus into your own day-to-day -day world. Go ahead and try. It looks really weird. Jesus was an itinerant peasant rabbi who lived and worked in the ancient Near East. None of us are those things. Um, maybe some peasants, that's about it. So how do you, as a mother of young children, which Jesus wasn't, how do you, as a nurse or an engineer or a tattoo artist or a city worker or a dad or a husband or a wife, how do you embody the lifestyle of Jesus when Jesus wasn't any of those things? It can be done, I would argue, and crafting what the early church called a rule of life. Now look at it this way. All spiritual formation is counterformation, meaning all of us are always being shaped and formed by the world around us. This is a necessary element of life in the world. It's not a uniquely Christian concept. We know this from experience and we actually know this from sociology and neuroscience. The stories that we believe, the culture around us, the information that we feed into our hearts and minds, the relationships that we entertain and maintain, all of these things have a cumulative effect on the person we are becoming over time. We, as human beings, young or old, we like to think of ourselves as impervious to influence. I know I do. But we're actually suckers, human beings. It's uh, been verified by science. We're getting, we're getting changed all the time, if only subtly, if only incrementally, but then a decade passes and we realize we're not the person we used to be, for better or for worse. 
So all spiritual formation is actually counterformation, meaning we're going deliberately against the current of all these influential forces in our lives to take responsibility for the person we are becoming. That's why Lent is not just a sacred season, but a formational season. The idea is not that we abstain from some luxury just to make life a little more annoying for 40 days. It, it does that, believe me, but it's about more than that. In offering what we call a Lenten sacrifice, which I know some of you guys are doing, we're reminding ourselves that our will is in desperate need of formation, that we have to rely on God's empowerment even to give up simple things like coffee or sugar or social media, even for just a brief period of time. And if we fail, and I'm not saying this to step on toes or make anyone feel bad, but if we fail in that sacrifice or we give up on it or whatever, if we let ourselves off the hook by switching to something much easier that's not really a sacrifice at all and explaining it to ourselves, well, actually, that wasn't the best idea for reasons A, B, and C. That also should demonstrate our incredible need for character formation. Lent is based on Jesus' 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, and we sometimes find that we can't go without one simple luxury for 40 days. I'm not saying this to beat up on anyone. I'm right there with you. It's hard. All spiritual formation is counter-formation, going against the grain of what the world is doing to us every single day. In spiritual formation, the Spirit of God in you accomplishes the truly heavy lifting. Thank God for that. But you have roles and responsibilities. God won't just commandeer your will and zap you into the likeness of Jesus. Every spiritual discipline is the means by which we take on the likeness of Jesus over time. So you think, I spend my time at work around people who don't believe in Jesus, and I'm observing these relationships and interaction, and it's all having this effect on me. I'm going to prioritize regular time and space to, say, listen to a sermon podcast or Bible podcast or to counteract these other narratives that I hear all the time with a steady diet of what I believe is true on a regular basis. It doesn't just happen by accident. Now, a year or so ago, um, I realized this in an icky new way. I had just released this whole book on deconstruction, and part of the package deal is that you have to go around on these podcasts and interviews so people will even know that a book exists in the first place. It's a whole thing. I don't love it. And a lot of these uh, interviews ended up with being, being with uh, deconstructed people looking for an argument. They wanted to come on and, you know, you present your case, I'll present my case, and we'll debate or whatever it was. So I did dozens of these things. I'm getting up super early for stuff in different time zones, sometimes a few of them a week. And I remember one morning during my ordinary rhythm of prayer, I was walking around my neighborhood at sunrise praying, and I felt this like strange, almost alien doubt and cynicism about what I was doing. Like, is this, what am I even really doing? Is this a farce? And I suddenly realized what I was thinking, that that thought had crept in. It was gross. I actually hated it. Now, don't get me wrong. Doubt can be an ordinary, even healthy part of any Christian's discipleship. But this was a weird kind of like distant, foreign, needling skepticism that had crept in. And I realized it was the voice of all these angry post-Christian people that I had spent hours in conversation with over those months. That doesn't mean I shouldn't have had conversations with anyone who disagrees with me. It just reminded me of my need to constantly feed myself the truth. I remember thinking that morning as that sincere sense of doubt crept in, like, oh my God, I need church. I need to be surrounded by my family as we lift our arms in worship and say, screw all that. We believe this stuff counterformation, church, 
is counterformation. But no one goes to church every Sunday by accident. No one adopts a disciplined life of spiritual rhythms like the ones that Jesus exemplified organically. If you base your spiritual rhythms on when life sort of serendipitously coalesces in such a way to make ideal space for, say, fasting, you will fast exactly zero days a year, every year. The idea is that you have to go against your culture, against your passive life rhythm, um, and even against your own will to adapt the lifestyle of Jesus into your time and place, into your season of life and your stage of discipleship and the roles that you uniquely fulfill. Take tonight's story, for example. Here are the three major actions from Jesus across that whole narrative. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's one. Fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then finally, it is written, it is written, it is written. In other words, Jesus was led by the Spirit he lived attuned to the direction of God's Spirit. His life, his, his direction, his schedule were all subject to the Spirit's leading. How did Jesus know that he was led by the Spirit? Because he lived in such a way where he was attuned to that. Remember, Jesus had other roles and responsibilities, and he had other opportunities. He had been a tecton, which is a Greek word that translated as kind of like craftsman or builder. Probably he was something like a stonemason. He was a son. He was a brother. He was a friend. He has ministry aspirations as a rabbi. He felt a unique sense of God's appointment on his life to preach the gospel and heal the sick and drive out demons and proclaim justice. And here, in this story, he leaves his old job. He leaves his mom, his siblings, his friends, his roles. He puts his ministry work on, ministry work on hold, and he goes away to do disciplines of prayer and fasting in silence and solitude. And for a significant stretch of time, that's like all of a sudden out of nowhere, who in here is like, stop what you're doing and for a month, go be by yourself. Our schedules aren't really prepared for that. How did he even know he was supposed to do that? Because the Holy Spirit led him. How did he know how to hear and obey the Holy Spirit? Because he lived a life of practicing disciplines of prayer and fasting and silence and solitude. So he was led by the Spirit and he practiced spiritual disciplines. Now, we say this all the time at Van City, but here it comes again. Spiritual disciplines are not an end unto themselves. They are a means to an end, and the end is God. Prayer is how we talk to and hear from and live life with God. Scripture is how we learn and study and fill our minds with, meditate on the truth of God. Fasting is how we bring our physicality into alignment with the longing of our hearts. Solitude is how we silence the white noise of life to make space for God to heal and speak to our souls. All of these things are just ways that we access God, hear from God, be with God, and they don't happen by accident. That's where a rule of life comes in. Jesus was led by the Spirit. He practiced spiritual disciplines. And then finally, he responded to pain and temptation with Scripture and sound doctrine. Now, one reason among many that I love this story is that at the opening of the story, Jesus is a mystic, which I, I love this stuff. He's going into the wilderness to fast and convene with God, just really esoteric sounding like sage, monk-like stuff. I found a lot of paintings um, in my time of reflection of Jesus, 40 days of fasting. He's often painted gaunt and pale, and that's what we stereotypically associate with a kind of flimsy, abstract, find-your-own-truth spirituality, meditating in the wilderness, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But then, then in the story, the devil shows up with a lie 
And Jesus doesn't just sit in a lotus position and say, oh, you know, interesting consideration, live your truth, you know. He doesn't take a deep breath and then start musing about his visions of the divine and the universe, you know. He says, immediately he says, nope, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this. So there's this combination of this rich, mystic, monastic lifestyle of fasting and solitude and uncompromising doctrine rooted in the truth of the scriptures. Think about it. When the devil tempts Jesus by saying, if you are the son of God, Jesus doesn't even call on his own experience. He could. He could say, no, that's not true. I just heard him say it. it you know, I don't know, a few days ago, a week ago, whatever it was. He goes straight to the Bible before his own experience in every temptation. It is written. It is also written away from me, Satan, for it is written. Jesus' life open to the spirit. His lifestyle of spirit-led spiritual rhythms are all anchored in the truth of the Scripture. There's this incredible line in 1 Timothy uh, where Paul writes, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Look at that incredible value that Paul places on doctrine. He tethers it to the word life. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. If you persevere in sound doctrine and what throughout Christian history we've called orthodoxy or right belief, then you will save yourself and others. Good grief. The stakes are high. And I, I was talking to a friend recently about a certain like divisive cultural issue that eventually led to a kind of modern splintering off from orthodoxy and a willingness to sort of say, oh, look, we know better now. The Bible just happens to be wrong about this one thing because we have social media justice and now we know better, right side of history, all that kind of stuff. And my friend asked, well, do you think you can be a Christian and hold this kind of new, evolved, modern position? And I said, I think that's a weird way to ask it. It's not really a question of whether or not one theological position disqualifies you from being a Christian, as in, sorry, you held position B, so no heaven for you. The question I argued is, if you're willing to say Jesus was wrong, can you follow him as master? How do we know what Jesus says is true? The scriptures. How do we imbibe their truth? Reading, study, reflection, meditation. How do we bring that truth to bear on our lives in our time and place? Through community and accountability and prayer and listening and intercession. How do we keep track of what Jesus is teaching in the scriptures is asking of us across the ever-evolving landscape of our lives? Through worship and fasting and solitude. In other words, just like Jesus, we, speak, we seek the Spirit through the disciplines guarded by right doctrine. The Spirit leads us into practice and practice and the truth we imbibe from it are forever subject to it is written. A rule of life is not just an invitation to live one way and not another. It is, but it's more than that. It's an invitation to defy compromise and embrace orthodoxy, right belief, anchored in the truth of God's inspired authoritative scriptures and realized in practice through a life seeking God's spirit in devoted spiritual rhythms. Now, some of us tend to think that if we know enough about the Bible, 
will somehow be zapped into intimacy with God, that reading or even study alone will form us over time. But reading and study alone won't do it. Now, don't get me wrong. It's absolutely an essential part of the formation process, but it's not the only part. There's the spirit, the disciplines, and the doctrine. All of it is part of a rule of life. To design a rule of life that makes lots of space for reflection and solitude or even worship, but does not prioritize the mind, the study and consideration of Scripture, theology, truth, that's only part of the equation, and quite frankly, it's not enough. On the other hand, a rule of life that has lots and lots of space for reading and podcasts and sermons, information, but no space to just be quiet and listen and to be still and silent before God, to be alone with God, to sit with Him in prayer, to fast, to practice solitude, that's not enough to change us to be like Jesus. So many of us are looking for the shortcut. As parents, we want the book or the podcast or, depressingly, the TikTok video that will unlock the secret of being the parent that we wish we were. Or we want the audio book to play on a long drive because we don't have time to read it. Or we want to be better by the end of the book <laughs> with the right information in mind. Or maybe we're fine with knowing enough memory verses to checkmate the devil. Uh, but the idea of sitting silently in God's presence at length with, with no secrets, no super, superficiality, no reading plan, no agenda, if we're honest, that's terrifying. Or maybe prayer and worship are actually what come easy, but to draw a line in the sand and say, Jesus is Lord, what he says is true, even when it puts me at odds with the cultural narrative, and even when I'd really rather not do that, he's still Lord, he's still master, and I'm not. It is written. As we invite you to create and update your rule of life, as well as our church rule of life, come to church on Sunday, be in a Van City community, serve, and give. I would encourage you to consider how to give appropriate space to both dimensions of your formation, meaning a steady diet of doctrinal truth through things like daily scripture reading, you know, like a, a, a Bible reading plan, sermon podcasts, uh, the Bible project. Geez, what an asset to the kingdom of God everything from the Bible project, spiritual reading, learning, and a steady diet of practicing God's presence through daily prayer and times of solitude and worship and silence. Which things come easier to you than the others? Which one daunts you? Which one scares you? And what would it look like for you to lean into the wind of that felt opposition and just take a small step into practice, a half hour of quiet with God in the morning, a monthly or even quarterly day of fasting, or a new daily Bible reading plan, or reflecting on a psalm every single day, or like I said, the Bible Project podcast, or lining up a few books to have going over a stretch of time in the coming weeks, spiritual reading to learn something new and keep the truth ever before you. Work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I really wish that that didn't sound so outrageous to us. 
myself absolutely included, and not even because we can totally see ourselves effortlessly devoting three hours to prayer in a day. That's not what we're looking to accomplish. What we want is to know from experience that that is good, that we need no convincing, that we'd crave no shortcuts, that time with Him is best, and that our lives must be organized to make it so. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to lead us into writing, updating, and reflecting on a rule of life. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.